0: Hello, and welcome to Artwork, the podcast produced by Fab NYC that brings together artists, community leaders, advocates, and cultural workers to talk about why we work and the way that we work, what we do, and how it's valued. My name is Risa Shoup. You may know me formerly as the executive director of Fab NYC. I'm now the executive director of Spaceworks, but I so loved artwork. And Ryan Gillum was kind enough to let me continue to be the host here, so I'm thrilled to be back for this episode. Um, I uh, currently run this organization called Spaceworks, which uh, helps to develop affordable workspace for people to gather and engage in their chosen cultural and creative practices. But today I am here in my beloved Lower East Side and I get to talk with some people who I greatly admire, Carlina Rivera, candidate for city council, and Jamie Rogers, the owner coffee and the chair of community board three. And we're going to talk about uh, how the Lower East Side has changed and the role of civic engagement and organizing in this community. But before we begin, I am going to ask Jamie and Carlina to
1: introduce themselves, Jamie, Oh, well, thank you, Risa. Um, My name is Jamie Rogers, uh, and uh, as Risa said, I am the owner of Pushcart Coffee, which is a small neighborhood coffee shop. Uh, We pride ourselves on being a gathering place for the community and a platform for entrepreneurs, all those folks on their laptops doing uh, God knows what all day long. Uh, I'm the chair of Community Board 3 Manhattan, so that means uh, the chair of your most local form of government uh, from Chinatown all the way up through the East Village on the east side of Manhattan. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks, Jamie. Carlina?
2: I'm Carlina Rivera, and I am a candidate for city council. District 2, which is a wonderful, wonderful district comprised of Murray Hill, Kipps Bay, Gramercy Park, Flatiron, East Village, and Lower East Side, where I was born and raised. I used to be on the community board, actually, and that is where I met Jamie Rogers, who is my husband and a wonderful human being. I am a lifelong resident, and I guess that makes me a lifelong activist. That is the spirit of this community, and it is full of such wonderful, wonderful people and artists, cultural workers, advocates, just professionals, and good, kind-hearted people, and I'm proud to be not just a, a lifelong resident, but really
0: proud to be running to hopefully represent them in the city that's wonderful. We're, we're excited and proud about that, too. Thank you, Carly. Um, so before I ask our first question, I wanted to acknowledge that one of the reasons we wanted to have this episode today is because we know from our colleagues in arts and culture that um, art is part of everything, and artists um, are parts of neighborhoods Uh, in ways beyond just their art making right and we would like to encourage and support our colleagues in arts and culture to um, get involved with community issues um, and maybe join their community board or go to community board meetings or volunteer for a local campaign Um, so I thought it would be great to start back at both of your roots to try to ground us in why civic engagement is important. And so I'm gonna ask you both to talk to us about what first sparked your interest in civic engagement uh, when you were a young person
1: or however old you were that that happened. All right, Uh, thank you, Risa, this is Jamie. Uh, I'd say that, you know, I grew up in a small town um, and part of growing up in a small town is you you feel like you're part of a, we'll say like a very contained ecosystem that, you know, um, that has all the, you know, all your needs. So you can walk to, you know, the grocery store, the post office, movie theater, the school, the church, wherever you go. Um, you can walk to your friends. Uh, you have uh, at an early age mentors that show you the value of being part of a community. Um, and you're part of a, you know, it, because, because you can access all the different component parts of your life in the community it uh it again it feels like this network this web and at an early age i had this understanding that i should contribute to it so it's uh throughout my life i feel like you know when i have the time i try to become part of the place where i call home uh where i call home has changed throughout my life uh, and i'm very uh, very fortunate to have the Lower East Side be my home um, with my wife and where we can again contribute to this really vibrant diverse community that is in essence a small town inside a big city Um, and that's pretty special. Yeah, Yeah, totally agree. Carlina?
2: I guess it started with my mom. She is uh, the type of person who is incredibly nice. Um, She's very quick to laugh and she loves to have a good time. Very personable, very friendly. And she's also someone who always taught us to take care of our neighbor. And I think that that has just uh, stood with me my whole life. And it could be someone who's next door or someone who lives down the street, or maybe someone that you met at school or where I used to play basketball or softball. But it's always recognizing that, um, you know, no matter how bad it could get, Mm-hmm. We're pretty blessed. You know, we live in New York City. We have housing. You know, we had food in the refrigerator. And we had each other, my mom, my sister, and I. And I think that, that stood with me. I, I also know that she also had these great relationships with, with people in the neighborhood. Uh, she pretty much grew up in New York City. Uh, she's from Puerto Rico. And we had great, great, uh, again, conversations and discussions with local activists. And they would always say you know, Maria, you should go to the, the precinct community council meeting or you should check out this meeting or you should really know what's going on and how it's going to affect us in the long run. And so I remember her kind of dragging me to those meetings and I was always with her. We were always together. Uh, we still remain very, very close. And that, that was something that I knew that she was doing not just for us, but it was for everyone. It was for whether it was the building that was in distress or whether it was that senior services are gonna get cut or whether you know there were threats to HUD in our housing. Um, she always looked at the bigger picture but knew that it started at home. So when I would go into these meetings, one thing that you'll notice, especially when it's social justice issues, is that the meetings are almost always 60% women. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. usually the front lines, 60% of the movement is women. And so you know we had a great tenant association president uh, named Marie Christopher She passed away in January 2013, but she would always come knocking on our door, giving us information, Mm -hmm. and that was really important to us because whether we opened the door to her or not that Mm -hmm. day, we knew that we were going to get that information. And we knew that she was doing it because she also saw the bigger picture. So I think it's really the the women in this community and the women in my life Mm who told me to be strong and to take care Mm -hmm. of yourself, but remember that taking care of others is also really important for, for your heart and for your spirit.
0: That's so beautiful. And I feel like I heard both of you talk about um, what it means to be thoughtful members of your community and to deeply care about your home, both like the intimate space that is your house or your apartment, the neighborhood that that's a part of and all the people in it. And it's, it's amazing to hear you both echo that in different ways. And I'm really excited for us to talk about that. So now that we know a little bit about um, where you're from and and perhaps how you've arrived in the um, really, really important positions in our community that you're in today, I just wanna touch for a second um, on your work and ground us in the practical. And if you've been a devoted listener of artwork, maybe you know that I'm teeing up practical (laughs) excellence. Um, And so what I will ask you to do is just um, talk to each other, talk to me, talk to our listeners about a really practical aspect of your work um, that you feel strongly about and maybe even relates back to the, the things that we just discussed in your backgrounds. Um, and I'll, I'll play along in this as well. Um, but Jamie, started last time, so Carlina, maybe you can um, start us off with practical excellence.
2: Well, this is an excellent segment of an excellent show. And I'm a big fan. <laughs> Um, Because I'm a practical person. I consider myself that type of person. I like to plan things out. I like to kind of look forward Mm -hmm. and um, prepare, you know, hope for the best and plan plan for the worst. Yeah. So one component of my work, and it has been now, even as a candidate, before working inside of the city council, before that, working at Good Old Lower East Side and as a local community board member, is... um, Services just Mm -hmm. really helping someone navigate a process understand a system or provide a referral Mm -hmm. So just today I was on the phone with someone who was trying to navigate navigate um, Rent regulated housing and all of those nuances and the changes that continue to come on a yearly basis and the constant threat from the state and the city and trying to help someone understand their benefits locally and and really citywide and I think that comes with a phone call, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in this climate when we're kind of all absorbed and obsessed with Twitter and we're on Instagram and we're constantly looking at our newsfeed and Facebook, which is all OK. Uh, sometimes picking up the phone and making a connection with someone uh, really is the best way to do it. So I've been on the phone a lot lately. And I think that that's just something that sometimes we miss. We miss mm-hmm. that that human interaction. And maybe it's not necessarily a touch or a hug, which is also really important um, to your own kind of per- personal and professional growth. But really talking to people, that, that's something that I feel we don't do enough. Yeah. And I'm, I, I like it. I'm looking forward to it um, every day as I, as I look at the, the people that I've spoken to and what their needs are and how I can help them. And sometimes it's just giving them a phone number or a name or a place to go, listening to them, supporting them, sometimes going there with them and being just someone who's being emotionally supportive. Uh, That's something that I have to do every day. Uh, That's something that I think is is quite practical in this line of work when you've decided to kind of devote your life to public service. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's great. Jamie? And... I'll say, and th- this is Jamie, that there are two, two different examples I can give. One in my professional life, and again, it, uh, it's to run Pushcart Coffee, a neighborhood coffee shop. The uh, the other would be in my work as the community community board chair. In uh, the coffee shop, one of the most essential services we provide, and it's it's the reason I'm in the business, is that you know two minute, two minute and thirty second um, sort of experience with a customer where. For that period of time, that small period of time, we can bring them joy. We can bring them solace. We can bring them a lot of very important, um, but basic things. Uh, you know, I, it, I often say that the most important aspect of the job of the people behind the counter is to uh, almost be in a social work capacity. It's to listen. It's to empathize, and and it's to essentially continue a narrative, a thread in a conversation that may have started years ago when the customer first walked in the door and, and they're now a daily regular. And some of the most um, you know so, some customers have shared some of those intimate details about their lives with me in that 2 minute and 30 second interval. It's really astounding and it, and it actually I think is what um, a lot of people especially in a busy city like New York are looking for. Uh, it, to, to come in and just have that little moment where they can share it with somebody uh, and then they're off, and hopefully with a delicious cup of coffee. The second is, as chair of the community board, community board is our most local form of government in the city. It, it, it serves two essential functions. One is to actually uh, distill the voice of the community into a resolution that goes into the city hall or to you know, the state and becomes uh, part of the, you know, the, the, the mix of what becomes policy and legislation that impacts our community. The second is it really forms; it really serves as a safety valve for public pressure. You know, when you have eight and a half, nine million people living in in this, you know, in these little these little cluster of boroughs, uh, and they're so diverse, and their needs are so different, and their and their backgrounds um, and their socioeconomics can can be so different. To get everyone around the table to agree on anything is really challenging, and to get them to again have a place where they can go and express their discontent or they can vent. Um, is really valuable. So the community board serves that function as well. It is that gateway into government participation. And that is the theme I take into every, that's the thing that I, that my, my sort of touchstone for every action, every decision I make on the board. Uh, so I, you know, I try to maximize. The participation amongst the members to make sure that all of them are being active members in the board and in their community. Try to make sure that our community has access to the board um, and to its members in its little things. You, you know, talks about sort of the practicality of it. It's things like at our board meetings where you know the community is uh, you know comes and participates, where we make sure that um, we take a moment where the board members are acknowledged, where each board member has to raise their hand and say, "I'm a board member." And um, what that does is, you know, we're sitting in a room, right, in a, in a high school auditorium, and everyone's you know, everyone's sort of mixed. And if you come in off the street, you would never know who is a board member and who's not. But by identifying them, um, every time, by identifying ourselves, we're able to, uh, again, be accessible, Um in a way that is essential for this city to function, for the participatory nature of boards to function, in, and for people to really feel like someone is representing them, a neighbor is representing them in this very important function.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true, having gone to community board meetings myself. And, um, you know, I think also I heard both of you talk about like the importance of really engaging with folks and kind of meeting them where they are and actually physically going there, right? Having a conversation is so important. Um, my organization you know, also provides services to um, a, a very, very diverse, and diverse in many ways, constituency. Um, and so my practical excellence, um, I did, we didn't plan this, right, but it's so related, and it's that I, today, I just brought together two other advocacy groups um, along with my own that I knew that I had the same kind of conversation right, with each of them. And it occurred to me that they they were aware that they were both also thinking about the same issues, but had not yet had a conversation together. And it was so simple. It's like, oh, then, then the, the three of us should just talk, right? And that's hard. It's hard to do that. Like, I'm not a hero for that, but it's hard to make that time. And sometimes it's really helpful if someone just flicks the switch for you and, um, I'm really grateful that they made the time to join that conversation. And I think all of our work will be stronger because now we're working in concert. Um, but it, it takes the effort of, of having the conversation together, not the email, um, not, again, just like going to the same events, but like actually talking together. Um, great. Well, thanks for playing practical excellence. Um, so I think now we'll jump in. Um, I want to also tell our listeners that another reason why the three of us are talking today is because on June 6th, here at Downtown Art, where we're recording this podcast, uh, there was an event that Carlina beautifully moderated called the State of the Lower East Side. Jamie was there too. We had an amazing conversation, I thought, about changes in this Lower East Side community. And I want to um, touch back on that, especially because, um, you know, Carlina, you've lived here and worked here your entire life. Um, jamie when did you move to the lower east side what year uh,
1: 2010
0: okay so seven years this is a substantial period of time um, so we've all we all have real roots here um, and so I thought I would start us off um, by asking guys to talk about just how have you seen the neighborhood uh, change in the time that you've lived and worked here like maybe what ha- what stands out to you the most no matter how idiosyncratic that
1: might be this is Jamie. I'd say the biggest change is uh, is in the construction that we see, um, and and there's lots of I think you know more subtle changes uh, mm-hmm. that you know I, having been a relatively new resident, I'm I'm not as aware of. But um, for instance, you know I, we have a dog. Uh, his name's Yoshi. He's a pug. He's super cute. He is. Uh, and we. we we will walk Yoshi and I will walk usually in the morning, because I, I the walk you know needs to be a, a little bit shorter than the evening longer walk. We'll walk uh, down a street about a block from our apartment uh, that used to have um, a couple garages, mechanic shops, um, had a, a wholesale fruit vendor, had had a lot of sort of functional more industrial things, and over the course of walking him around this block. Uh, so, you know, multiple new buildings have been you know like buildings have been demolished, the ground cleared, new buildings have been built, and new buildings have been opened, and they are a hundred percent luxury, market rate apartments, rental apartments, and that is a significant change, and that's going on throughout the entire neighborhood. Um, we're not you know we, we, we almost I would say you can't go more than a couple blocks without seeing a, a building under construction or brand new building, and the vast majority of that construction is uh market rate luxury um and it is not what this neighborhood was known for historically this was the place where once you got off the boat uh this is where you know as an immigrant this is where you started your life your your family your career um and then would you know, sort of take off from there i think we're losing that at a rapid pace uh it's it it's a it's a story throughout the city um, I don't know where it puts us in 10, 20, 50 years, uh, but we are seeing the change day by day. Yoshi has seen it in particular. Um, and he will be 11. He, he will be 11, actually, in a couple of weeks, so we're very excited about that as well. So that's significant. Yeah, definitely.
2: This is a, this is an interesting question because there's so many deep like levels. You can get so deep in, in um, specific I guess one thing that we don't really have anymore, or that I have seen the change, and to me, it is—it has to do with, you know, economics, immigration, culture. There are no more bodegas, like classic mm-hmm. bodegas.
0: And wait, wait—I think you have to define your definition of a that, bodega. That's true. That's yeah. true. And I
2: do have to do that because we still have delis. Mm-hmm. You know, we still have uh, mini-marts, I guess, or, or groceries, um, but the bodega specifically was typically a uh, Puerto Rican run, usually a Latino family, a family-owned business. They sold pretty much what you needed day-to-day to survive, like milk and eggs and bread and razor blades, like, you know, to shave and... Uh, of course, like water balloons, you know, mm-hmm. things that you needed to survive. <laughs> and, and like a, a, a steak sandwich, yeah. you know, yeah. things like that. Um, and and it, was, it was an interesting, uh, like a cultural thing because, you know, there's like the music playing and the family's usually in the store and the cat's sleeping on the bread. And there's like these dusty boxes of guava paste. Um, and there was just something about it to me that was very Loicina. And this existed in other parts of the neighborhood like Bushwick and, and uptown in El Barrio. But I think that we do see that less. The the demographics has changed pretty much mm-hmm. over the past twenty years to be, you know, to be honest about it. And um, that's something that I don't see anymore. And I feel like you could you could ask your, your mom for a few dollars and, and make off like a bandit in a <laughs> bodega. Now you can't. You can't do that. A couple dollars barely get to a piragua, yeah. which is a snow cone, mm-hmm. right? They shave mm-hmm. the big block mm-hmm. of ice, they pour the artificial syrup and some of them are better than others. Mm-hmm. I like cherry. <laughs> and um, you know, you can't really do that anymore. And I know that has to do, like I said, with a lot of things, market forces and the price of goods and the change of, of a city being more service oriented. But it's something that, that I kind of miss and something a little bit personal.
0: Mm-hmm. What, has, there, has anything come in to fill the bodega gap for you?
2: Some, there's been some some groceries like this also changed yeah. um you know you you saw a lot of uh there were definitely a lot of uh puerto rican owned <laughs> bodegas or groceries we had korean families locally uh we definitely had now dominican owned uh grocery stores um you know, it, there's just been like a change also in, in how you see these waves of, of, of immigrants, which is really actually really interesting and fascinating to see. So it's also kind of educational. But um, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a different kind of store. You know, there's lots of mixed nuts and kale chips <laughs> and, you know, different kinds of infused water. Yeah. And you know that's that's something. It's better, you know. We're we're trying to eat as a as a city and as a nation. We're trying to be a more healthy people. Uh, but it was just something growing up that you just don't see anymore. And I also feel like when you had two dollars in your pocket, like as a young person, I mean, you feel like a, like a queen. Yep. Yep. So it's 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 a little bit different, and the city's incredibly expensive, especially this island of Manhattan. It's gone through its own kind of um, extreme change. But I think that, you know, for the most part, though, it is it is still so authentic around here. And there's different pockets of culture and interesting things and organizations and institutions Mm -hmm. that are trying to keep that alive. And I think that uh, collectively, we'll 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 be sure to hang on to what we need to remember ourselves, like our identity as a as a community that has attracted so many people.
0: Yeah, I agree. I want to I want to. Get right back to this notion of like our how we show our identity to one another, um, but I, I do want to ask you, Jamie, is there anything, anything that you miss? Um, I'll say for me, it's the the thing that I would have bought is not the water balloons, but the parachute men. Like I don't know where to buy that anymore. But you totally buy that at a Bodega, right? Um, but yeah, is there anything that you miss, like since you've moved here, that's no longer here?
1: Uh, I'll say that you know the um, it, it's actually yeah there, there are a few things that I value coming from um you know more suburban community uh that um that are a little bit harder uh the you know um there's like a and this is this is endemic everywhere but like when I was a little kid um from the time I could actually like was allowed to like walk Alone, mm-hmm. um, I would go after school to like our local bookstore, um, mm-hmm. which actually in the town I grew up in is still still there, oh. which is pretty remarkable. And I always make sure to buy anytime I'm actually buying a real book, I buy it from there, mm-hmm. um, which sadly isn't that frequent anymore uh, because of the Kindle. But um, which is part of the problem because you know there are no real places like there are no small bookstores anymore. This is a problem around the country. It's a problem in our neighborhood. You know it's. Uh, and it was, for me, like, as a 10, 11-year-old, like, an awesome place to go. Because i just get lost in, in this place where I could, like, you know, um, just even the smell of, like, you know, books. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's Civil Barnes & Noble, um, not too far away, where you can have it's The all Strand. The, there's mm-hmm. The Strand, obviously, mm-hmm. where you one. can get lost. Um, there's, uh, you know, they're, they're, the books are not dead, but they... Uh, but the idea of an independent bookstore, um, you know, owned and operated by a local person uh, is... Is a really hard to find thing uh i think that's that's for me really sad and and we we struggle with this i think um very frequently with the community board and that is how to how to how to basically revive and sustain the mom and pop shops that mm-hmm. people kind of know and and romanticize and you know uh Wish we had again, and the the pressures of online retail, the rising commercial rents of Manhattan, uh, a lot of these forces have just it, well, and the fact that you know your mom and pop shop was typically run by someone who lived up, you know above it, right, right? Or, right or down the right. block. That is also impossible now. Yeah. So I think you know all of those forces combined means that there's not a there's not a real easy solution to uh, regaining that. Quality of you know uh, of, of like retail life, and Carlina mentioned like the bodegas had you know Puerto Rican owners that were families, and most of them probably lived in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, like her grandfather owned a bodega mm-hmm. in Bushwick when he lived in Bushwick, mm-hmm. you know. But like, not I, I. bet you know very few of the people who own the delis today live in the neighborhood, you know. And and there are immigrant families that working extremely hard. They probably have to travel like an hour and a half right. from like deep Queens or Brooklyn yeah. to get here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just it's just. Those, those little things make a big difference when you talk about kind of the the again the interconnected web of the community yeah. and before I heard you both talk a lot about
0: like what it is to to be a neighbor to be to make a home somewhere um, and then just now I feel like we're talking a little bit about uh, the loss of familiar things um, and I do so I do want to return this notion of like our identity and how we articulate that Um Writing is one way, right? We just talked about books. Uh, we have a lot of great arts and culture and an amazing creative history here on the Lower East Side. I'm wondering if you guys can talk to us a little bit about um, how you feel this community really like uh, shows its true colors and remains familiar to um, to the folks who have been here for a long time and helps bring in new folks despite the losses of these like, important institutions that are bodegas and the housing developments that are also sadly um, going away.
2: I guess, um, well, there's a couple of ways, because uh, there are these uh, pockets of the community where, where a lot of residents that, that live here and that have contributed here over the years have been doing so because they themselves are long-term uh, residents. Mm-hmm. So these artists, I mean, the way that they've contributed and what and what they've done. And I think this block is, is very representative of that. I think Fourth Arts block is, is filled with these experimental theater companies and these organizations that are trying to embrace the, the local culture and the roots and, and the history. And I think that this block is very representative of that. I also think that, you know, while it may be a little bit controversial in terms of of spots where you can go and, and listen to music, I do mm-hmm. feel we don't have a lot of venues where we can go and listen to kind of the typical music of, of some of the populations that make up this neighborhood. And I think that that's important to keep. What,
0: what might those types of music be? Or what are you thinking of?
2: It could be like... Um, Afro-Latin jazz, salsa, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. bachata. It yeah. could be folk yeah. music. And I think being able to go to those spaces and hear that is important. Sometimes mm-hmm. you hear it coming out of somebody's car right. or off the radio that's been tied to the back of their bike <laughs> or you know out somebody's window. And I think yeah. that, that I do love that about summer. I mean, besides like, the subwoofers in the bass sometimes are a little much <laughs> at 9 a.m. Yeah. But I think that that's really, really important. The other thing that I love to see is I think we have also a history of murals uh, yeah. that it, that explain and, and that have a lot of intricate details involved in, in some of these beautiful pieces of art and I think that graffiti now I feel like finally being respected as a, like a genre of art and, and how you create mm-hmm. is is something that was been here a long time yeah you know so I feel like that's important to keep because we want people to see things that make this uh, kind of define this community and, and how people identify themselves, and so it's you know it's music, it's it's seeing art, it's feeling it, it's hearing it, um, and it's creating it. So making sure that also the kids have a space to go, yeah. and express themselves because there's so much untapped potential in this neighborhood, and a lot of it is because of just the socioeconomic status of some of the areas
1: here. Mhm.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I. Uh... Actually, I don't, I don't have a huge amount to follow up. I think you explained it super well. I think that, you know, <laughs> there's the, that cultural, like, you know, the, this neighborhood is so vibrant because of its arts and culture community, and it has an arts and culture community largely because there was a time, um, primarily due to disinvestment, that this neighborhood was affordable for mm-hmm. the arts and culture community. To invest, to live, mm-hmm. to contribute, uh, and we have, and that toehold, um, luckily, uh, through the really smart um, decisions and the dedication and hard work of uh, the the folks who are, you know are are, are here um, today, working in the arts and culture community, that 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 enabled these institutions to remain. Right, and it was through smart, you know, smart policy decisions, smart land use decisions, smart, smart decisions in terms of funding, um, that have made it so that uh, people can continue to contribute in arts and culture here, and that's what's making this neighborhood continues to make this neighborhood so special. Mm-hmm. Uh, the worry, my concern, is that there's a fundamental ingredient missing, and that is no longer affordable for artists to live here. Mm. Uh, there's no investment in artist housing. Um, There's very few ways for artists to, you know, again, sort of regenerate uh, the contributions um, that, you know, that were made decades ago that, again, you know, uh, perpetuate what is a really awesome culture. But I worry that um, it's a one, you know, that we we won't gain any more arts and culture space Mm. and that when you don't gain things in the city, you almost always lose them eventually. Not to be doom and gloom about it, mm-hmm. but it is. It is, a I think, a, a serious concern we need to be realistic about. Mm-hmm. We need to be forward-thinking about how we actually, um, you know, be proactive yep. about maintaining, not just maintaining, but gaining, regaining arts and culture space in the community. So you both, you both
0: organize people as part of the work that you do. Um, what would you say to one another and our listeners about, like, how can they be involved in helping to strengthen parts of the community that they fear are being lost, whether that's arts and culture, uh, specific type of housing, parks, like how would you encourage people to get more involved?
2: Well, we're very lucky in that this part of the city, we have a lot of great organizations. We have a lot of advocacy groups, a lot of nonprofits, a lot of, you know, just collective groups of people that have kind of sprang into action because of any which thing that's gone on. I mean, uh, Jamie mentioned that when it came to uh, this time of abandonment and disinvestment in the city, people went into these buildings and with sweat equity, they created affordable homes Mm -hmm. and they went into these you know, lots of rubble and they cleared them and they made these beautiful community gardens. So our activist spirit has always been here and it has created this amazing network of nonprofits and organizations and and groups of people and i think that whatever it is and and it doesn't have to be too grandiose it could be something very specific right Mm -hmm. it could be Mm -hmm. parks it could be gardens it could be you know it could be graffiti art it could be spoken word whatever it is that you find yourself interested in or attracted to there is room for you to participate Mm. it might not be the easiest space to find but just if you if you talk to people you know, you'll meet that person that can introduce you to that person that says, you know, you should go here. They have this great space for you. They could use your help, they could use your assistance. And as someone who used to work at a nonprofit, I know that sometimes um, when people wanna help, you know, it takes some capacity to try to actually manage volunteers. Yeah. Um, but if you just give them a chance and you let them know, hey, I, you know, I'll be patient, I wanna help, I'm gonna find a place for me to be that's gonna support you and your work because it's important. Um, To my future, you know, that's okay. You can you can say that because I think, you know, we're all We all want to be happy and if we're happy with where we are and what we're doing and what we're producing Then we want to contribute more I mean you can you can start in something like the community board, which I'm sure Jamie's gonna give his PSA about in a second Um, And 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 that's also a very local way of getting involved which which I love I mean to be civically engaged I would always encourage people to to get out and vote Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, we can, we can complain, but we also have to vote and make sure that we have representation, um, that has our, our interests and our values and our beliefs at heart. Um, so whatever it is, you know, find that space, do a little bit of research, go to your local library, mm. talk to, talk to someone, you know, walk into an organization and say, Hey, I want to help. Tell me how.
0: Yeah. I feel like on the lawyer's side, you can really do that. Um, yeah. like we're think, lucky. Yeah, yeah. We're really lucky. I mean, like I live in. Uh, I live in a different neighborhood, I'm not going to trash my neighborhood, but I don't feel like I can do that where I live, I feel like it's I th- felt like you could do that here. Um, like before this started, Ryan and I were talking, Ryan's the um, executive director of Downtown Art and now FAB, and we were talking about just the fact that people walk into the FAB office all the time and we talk to them, and they felt comfortable doing that, um, and that's really, it's really, really important, yeah, um, but Jamie, what's your, what's your response?
1: Oh, so specific. you mean specifically for uh, artists and, you know... And
0: anyone, and, anyone, yeah. And I mean, culture. I think a lot of our listeners work in arts and culture, but, yeah. like, we just want to give folks some suggestions for, for how they can get involved, especially because, you know, you guys spoke so beautifully about the loss of certain things and the need to um, protect that because, yeah, the city moves really, really fast. We mm-hmm. do often, once things stop growing, um, they do almost immediately right become threatened so how do we how can we as residents and workers get involved in strengthening
1: yes and and i think that would be one uh always looking for looking for new me you know the new media way to approach people that's kind of the golden egg everyone's chasing Mm is you know uh, the community that's moving into our neighborhood they're transient true uh, but they're also very plugged into what's cool and what's on Thrill List and what, you know, what what they can find on Yelp. And, uh, and I think that there is a lot of, un, sort of unclaimed ground in terms of how to get them to look into, the, into this community mm-hmm. to pay attention to the fact that there's a vibrant arts and culture community they're not aware of. They may not have been aware of when they moved here. And they may only be here for a couple of years, but they'll take that Whatever, they, whatever we teach them, whatever you know, they, they experience here, they'll take that when they move to the other three or four places they're going to move in the city, um, and, and that won't be lost on them. Um, the other thing that I think is really valuable is making sure that our, our public institutions, our community board, our local elected officials, our you know, city agencies are all extremely mindful of how important it is to protect the, and grow the arts and culture community here. And that we are making again long term strategies for investment into those. Uh, I think it's it's really important that we see arts and culture as another as an economic engine for the community, uh, so that you know we get buy in from the for profit sector. Uh, not all for profit things are necessarily you know e- you know evil machines mm-hmm. devouring arts and culture. I think that there's a symbiosis mm-hmm. that we can achieve, uh, not just in the small business sector, but even in the in the larger players that you know, may have interests in the community. I, I don't know what those are, uh, but I have to believe that everybody, to some degree, loves art and culture in whatever whatever form of art, whatever mm-hmm. form of culture. Uh, we, you know, we, we should be thinking about bigger tents, bro, you know, bigger alliances, better ways to broadcast the message that this community um, is, is, a, is a haven uh, and a thriving community for arts and culture.
0: And, and earlier, Carlina, you know, mentioned that um, you might talk to us about the community board, and the community board is definitely a place, right, where, where folks from across sectors get together and, um, you know, get to make change in, in, um, in response to challenges that are uh, important and major in our community. And so I wonder, Jamie, if you could um, quickly, like, tell us um, how do we start to get involved with our community boards? Can we, can we just go to meetings? Like, how do we find out about them?
1: Well, yes, Risa, you can. Thank you. All community <laughs> board meetings are public. They are your most local form of government. And so, in fact, uh, each meeting is held for you and for every citizen of New York. Was that PSA enough? I don't know. No, that was, it was good. It was, it was all, right. Nice. all right. All right, all right. <laughs> well, no, it's, it, you know, the, the city has 59 community boards. Uh, there are 12 in Manhattan and about the same in each other borough. And each, borough, each board has 50 members. Those members r- represent an area roughly... Of uh, about 160,000, 170,000 people, so roughly the size of a small US city. And those 50 members who are appointed by the borough president are, are your neighbors. They're your small business owners. They're the people, you know, the long term stakeholders or short term stakeholders who really, ha- you know, f- have the time and want to put in the energy to, uh, again, being uh, serving as the conduit for the voice of the community. I won't even say being the voice of the community because ultimately, um, attending the board meetings as members of the public, contributing to the dialogue and making uh, again a, a substantive impact on the, the outcomes of the board is what is, is what ends up being the voice of the community from the city's perspective. So elected officials will go to the, you know they, they may have a, a, an important decision to make and their first thought will be, what does my community think? And the answer to that is, I'll look to the community board. Mm-hmm. So in that way, we, we serve an essential function, and I uh, I really encourage all members of the public to participate because um, because it is how things get done. In addition to voting, which is also very important. Yes,
0: At like a hundred percent. If you are eligible to vote, please <laughs> vote. If you're not sure if you're eligible to vote, uh, who can you talk to? Actually, how do we find out? How do you find out if you're eligible to vote?
2: You well. You can check online. You can go to your local office, your Board of Elections Mm -hmm. office. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, you know, I will say now that, you know, I'm talking to people who who question whether they can vote, whether it's based on citizenship or that they were formerly incarcerated. Right. I think that there needs to be a huge education Mm -hmm. campaign to really demystify this process and allow people and make it easier to vote. It's just way too difficult for such a, you know, quote unquote, progressive city and that we really have to to move forward and and figure out how to just make it easier for people to actually let their voice be heard in an election, which can really, really change, you know, the the climate of your city um, in, in a in a substantial way because of the funds, because of programs that can be cut because of what they're advocating for. Um, and I think that, you know, the community board was an excellent introduction yeah, for me mm-hmm. um, in terms of how mm-hmm. local politics uh, it runs. And one thing I will say is now that I'm on this campaign, a lot of the people that I have who are supporting me and who are volunteering on the campaign are people I don't think I ever would have had a chance to interact with and make friendships with. Unless we had met on that right. community board. In- including perhaps the man to whom you're married. Oh, yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. Including my husband. Yes. Yes. So nice. I mean, you know, like I say, <laughs> do not join your community board to find love. <laughs> you know, go to try to make a difference. Yes. But um, if it happens, you know, mouth off.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things, that, and we're, we're kind of nearing the end of our time. But one of the things I think is an undercurrent in this whole conversation uh, is the nos- the notion of collaboration, right? Like um, Jamie was talking before about the um, the support that nonprofit arts and culture can receive from the for profit sector. And yeah, totally right. Like this is a, a thing that sometimes you bring it up in a group of people, and everyone does go like, ah, no, like for profit is evil, and I'm glad that we're talking about how that's not not so Those black and white.
2: Corporations. Yeah, yeah now I know. Sometimes. Yeah.
0: But like, there, there are also like beautiful collaborations that happen there, I mean, I know that at Fourth Arts Block we do um, uh, an event every fall where we um, redistribute reclaimed materials um, to artists and residents for arts and crafts, and a lot of those materials come from local businesses, and they also come from local residents and other sources, but businesses do donate to that. And it's a small thing, but it makes a big difference in the life of the person who gets that. So as our closing question, um, collaboration being i think like a a key value of the lower east side i would like you both and you both are collaborating in many ways right um can you can you each quickly tell our listeners about um one of the coolest collaborations you know of here in the lower east side wow
2: there's a there's a so many. Um, my whole my whole career has been in collaboration because you know when when you're working in nonprofit or when you're from very humble beginnings, you're always looking at how to increase capacity mm-hmm. and how to mm-hmm. you know just build your skills. And there's just so much talent. Um, hmm. Do you have one? I have a few, so I have to narrow it down.
1: Wow. I have a I have one that I've I've witnessed from mm-hmm. an outsider's perspective, but I find to be. Uh, one of the most valuable collaborations i've seen in it and an actual example of how it worked well and it's one that uh carlina actually has been an integral part of and i'm really proud uh, proud of her for it and that would be uh an organization called les ready mm-hmm. les ready uh is is a it, it's a disaster preparedness and resiliency organization that um came about uh, as a result of Hurricane Sandy the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy after uh, we had no power for over five days and we have you know many you know walkups high-rise buildings where we have seniors who you know couldn't get their medication couldn't get food um, you know we had a lot of you know we had damaged small businesses we had um, damaged basements to you know older buildings there's just a, a tremendous amount to do and because of the, you know, the because this community is so uh, good at organizing, uh, the first thing that people said was, "We need a disaster preparedness organization. We 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 cannot risk being this vulnerable again." And uh, and whether that's man-made, uh, human-made, excuse me, or um, although you know, men are making most of the disasters, probably, but human-made <laughs> or natural disasters. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, it is something that the community put together, and then unfortunately we had several, uh, a year ago, we had an explosion on Second Avenue. Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it claimed the lives of two people. Um, it, it destroyed the homes of many more. Uh, but Elias Ready, due to the efforts uh, of the collaboration of many different community partners, was ready. And it did exactly what the, the organizers had intended for it to do. Uh, it, it provided supplies and resources to the victims, um, to their families, um, to the displaced. Uh, it, it sprang into action, and, and it is so cool to see that uh, to, to to see that thing you know basically happen because of a disaster, and because and and then because of the disaster, some real constructive thinking because of collaboration. So, yeah, that's my example. Uh,
2: well, I think the, the envir- environmental justice is, is a great example of that. I'm really excited for what we're doing with Solarize Lower East Side and, and really looking at alternative forms of energy and power on how we really bring, um, make sure that we're ready, we are ready for the next disaster, but also to, to, to be in the, as independent as possible in, in this large city and take, take care of ourselves. Um, I mean, the artist collaboration in this community is, is so amazing. Mm. I'm really excited, of course, for Fab and Downtown Art yeah. and kind of this kind of new path going forward and some of the work that Downtown Art is doing with local uh, dance, like very new, brand new um, dance groups like Infinite Movement, mm-hmm. um, things that the Lois Sida Center is doing, almost everything that they've mm-hmm. produced over the last couple of years has been amazing and relevant, and they're working with Thrive Collective, which does mural art in the style of these old school murals and and that we've seen in the neighborhood. Um, you know, like you said, we have this great great history, mm-hmm. and and you know, collaboration and coalition building are how we've gotten most things done, and I I know we're gonna have that in our future. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. and and I'm just excited to just be whatever part of it that I can well i I have no doubt that both of you will continue to be a big part of it because you want to be right like um we we put our time and our resources where we want to put them, and um I you know, in the time that I've been lucky enough to work with both of you, I've seen you um just continue to put so much more and more of yourselves into. Uh, the work that is happening to strengthen the whole of our Lower East Side and to really listen to people and respond to their needs. And um, again, I just I admire both of you so much. and I know you're going oh, to be you. a big part of our future. Um, I think that brings us to the end of this episode of Artwork. I'm going to go through a list of heartfelt thank yous. Um, and then I have one more question for you guys, so don't go away. <laughs> um, first and foremost, Carlina, Jamie, I want to thank you both for your time and um, sharing about your experiences and your values today. Um, I want to thank Rob O'Neill, who's pinch hitting on audio engineering. Um, we we literally would not have the episode without you, Rob, so thank you so much. Um, Ryan Gillum, executive director of Downtown Art and Fab NYC. thank you for space, thank you for support, thank you for the great work you do in our community. Kim Golding is somewhere here in the background. She works for Fab NYC. Thank you, Kim, as well, for your great work. Um, thank you, Denise Shumay and Tim McAleer, who will be editing this sometime in the future and releasing it out into the world um i want to thank my staff at spaceworks for letting the boss go and do this project that i love so so very much thanks guys um and i want to thank all of you our listeners please continue to find artwork on the fab nyc website www.fabnyc.org as well as on stitcher and itunes and very quickly before we go carlina jamie where can we find you on the internet
1: Oh, well, I have an email address, um, yeah, and... Uh, and
2: give them your Twitter handle.
1: Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Well, my cool. my Twitter handle is uh, at James uh, P. Rogers, and my um, email address is james.p.rogers at gmail.com. That's Rogers without a D, not, you know, it, it, I don't know where that D came in in... in the etymology of the name Rogers mm-hmm. that's how you no can d. find me it's
0: no, d. No, no d. d no d no shade Carlina where can we find you on the internet yeah I'm,
2: I'm also on uh, Twitter Carl, at Carlina Rivera and Carlina Rivera dot com Carlina Rivera dot nyc mm-hmm. so you can come and find me there and kind of see what I'm up to and contact me with any questions stories mm-hmm. and ideas I love meeting new people and I'm excited should just be a part of
0: this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, and quickly, Jimmy, Community Board 3 and Pushcart, how do we find those on the internet?
1: Oh, well, that's simple. Uh, it's uh, Pushcart Coffee, uh, at Pushcart Coffee is the Twitter, and PushcartCoffee.com is our website. <laughs> Community Board 3 Manhattan is... Uh, That would be CB3Manhattan.org or our new Twitter handle, CB3MAN. Yes. Yeah. So we're excited about that.
0: 2017, y'all. Social media. (laughs) Um, Thank you guys again. Thanks, listeners. Have fun out there.